You're listening to a podcast of the Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Church in the city of Cork on the beautiful south coast of Ireland. We hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. We want to take a look at God's Word together in just a couple of moments. We want to have a look today. Today's message is titled, A Question of Vision. I remember when I was a young man, I was, well, young man, I was a boy, I was probably about 10 years of age when I actually first encountered the first blind person that I ever met. And he was a guy that we knew who lived near the, the, who lived in the area that I grew up in. And he was a very big, tall man and you couldn't miss him. He, He had the dark glasses and he had the white stick and he used to walk around the area where I lived. And one day when I was out, I I actually happened to be observing him. I wasn't that far from him. I was only a few meters away from him when he was walking along the street. And I noticed that he was beginning to veer off towards the side of the street and he was moving with his cane. And the next thing is he walked straight into an electricity pole. And I mean straight into the pole. Whatever sequence of strike of the cane or whatever sequence of step he did, he managed to walk straight into it and I remember and the man just reacted with such incredible grace and patience I would have expected an expletive loaded response but he didn't he just went oh and then he politely went on his way and I just thought you know something it's really hard to be blind it's really hard to make your way in the world without the ability to see where you're going. Simple as, and it just struck me that we're so blessed to be able to see. For those of us who are seeing, we're so blessed. It's a gift from God in many, many senses. And if it's hard to be blind now, or hard to be blind when I was growing up, can you imagine how hard it was to be blind 2,000 years ago? And I'm going to look at a story today from Luke's Gospel, and we look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, the story of a blind man who encounters Jesus. But I want to do one thing though. Before I do that, I want to compare something. Last week, I was talking about somebody who had a vision and was followed by a question. In this case, I have somebody who was asked the question and it was followed by vision, by the ability to see. I'm going to be looking at the blind man who could see who saw Jesus. This is the story of a guy called Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus' story is recorded in three of the Gospels. It's in Mark's Gospel, where he's named Bartimaeus. It's in Matthew's Gospel, where the story is told that there were two men who were blind. It's just a different emphasis in the story. But I'm looking at the Luke's Gospel story, and it's the story of Jesus just as he's about to go in to Jericho. Now, before I go on, I just want to compare two things. I want to compare this guy to Solomon, whom I was talking about last week. The difference between Solomon and this guy couldn't have been more severe. Solomon was a man of riches and privilege and ability and opportunity. He was a man in a royal line of succession. He was a blessed man in every possible sense of the word when God appeared to him and spoke to him and asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Ask and I will give it to you. In this case, we have a man who is absolutely destitute. What's it like to live a day-to-day life for a blind man in the Palestine of Jesus' time? What was it like for him? His daily life was based on begging. He had a subsistence existence. And so that every day when he went out, he would sit in the same place as the Gospels record, and he would beg, probably calling up for alms, alms of what people gave voluntarily to the poor. He would ask for alms. Every day he would go out and, and beg, and that's how he existed. And so in that sense, He didn't really have a great plan for his life. It's not like he was making plans for his retirement down in Haifa or he wasn't planning to go to Elat or something below on the Red Sea coast. He was actually planning to just live 
day to day, there wasn't any great vision, there wasn't any great purpose, there wasn't any great plan working out in his life. And that's the man whom we encounter when we read here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. We're going to look at what the verses say. We're going to look and consider what God's word has to say about this encounter. But I'm just going to pray first. Father in heaven, I pray. As we look at your word, we would be reminded that your word is a hammer that breaks up hard ground. It is a mirror that reflects who we are and what we're like. Lord, it is a sword that separates, Lord. It is a a foundation for our lives. As we look at your word, may we pay attention to it in our inner heart core, Lord. May it speak to our minds, our hearts and our souls in Jesus' mighty name. And God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's have a look at what the astral gospel story says. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the noise of the crowd going past, he asked, what was happening? What's going on? There's a big crowd going past. What's, the, what, what's going on here? This doesn't normally happen, not outside the gates of Jericho. This was a, an abnormal and an unusual activity. Sometimes we're going about our normal daily business. And so often God visits us when we're just going about our daily business. But we have to pay attention and sense that God is near. He is sitting by the side of the road. A poor man just begging for arms. And this is what it says. They told him that Jesus, the Nazarene, was going by. And so he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And immediately something jumps out of this story, though you might notice it initially and at first. And that is the title that this blind man gives to Jesus. Remember in the Gospels, we're familiar with him being called Lord. We're familiar with him being called Rabbi teacher, good teacher, master, called all of these different names, but this is an unusual one. Jesus, son of David. This blind man is calling out to Jesus by his messianic title. He knew that he was a descendant of David. Now, did Zacchaeus know Jesus' biography? I suggest he probably didn't. Did he know Jesus' lineage and ancestry? I'm going to suggest to you that he probably didn't. But what he did know was that this Jesus of Nazareth was doing the things that the Messiah would do. The things that Jesus himself announced in the synagogue as recorded in Luke's gospel when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor and it goes on to give sight to the eyes of the blind. This man recognized that Jesus was the Messiah by the actions that he was performing. Not necessarily by being told by someone else or knowing the ancestry of the lineage. And so he calls out this title, Jesus, Son of David. A controversial title, by the way, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law didn't particularly like this title. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's sitting by the side of the road. And the curious thing about this blind guy is that, you see, if you go back and you think about how the Jewish mindset was at the time, they always built in what you would call a causal story. In other words, why is this guy blind? You might remember the account from the Gospels where Jesus' disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Not this particular guy we're talking about, but another man who was born blind whom Jesus healed at the Pool of Siloam. But when he's... When they're looking at this blind guy, the assumption in the Jewish psychology and their worldview was that either this guy was a sinner and had gone blind and that God had struck him or judged him or somebody belonged to him. 
this had happened to her. So this guy was a nobody. In every sense of the word, he was a nobody and he could not see. And though he didn't have physical vision, he definitely had perception. He could see what others who were very close in their own Jesus couldn't see. He could see that he was the Messiah. It goes on to say, be quiet, the people in front yelled at him. Would you shut up? What are you shouting for? What are you? Do you know people around him who were surrounding him? The people in the crowd, they didn't like him shouting this title, Jesus, son of David. And they told him to be quiet. You know, sometimes in our lives, brothers and sisters, there are people and there are situations that tell us to be quiet. What is telling you to be quiet? What stops you from calling out to Jesus? What stops you from calling out your prayers? What stops you from asking your heavenly father for the things that you need and for the things and the troubles in your life that God may deal with them? What is stopping you from calling out? I believe that there's a prophetic import for that today. And I think some people who are tuned in today have literally encountered a physical situation where they felt they were stopped from speaking about Jesus or speaking to Jesus, whether it's because of somebody else in your life or whether it's because of uh, your circumstances or your difficulties, maybe your employer, maybe someone that you share a house with, but somebody's interfering. But I want to give you what I believe is a prophetic piece of advice this morning, and that is this. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. He didn't let the things that were getting in the way stop him from calling out to Jesus. And so they shouldn't stop us from calling out to Jesus too. Our needs are as legitimate as his needs. Even if they're not as profound or as obvious, our needs are as legitimate. Our situation is as legitimate. God values us just as much as he valued this man's voice. We must call out to him. Don't let other voices silence you. Whether they're the internal voices to you, whether they are external to you, don't let other voices silence you. He shouted only the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And his prayer was heard. This blind man who cannot see anything, who doesn't understand color, who doesn't understand the situation is in, has only, can only feel and can only hear. And yet he has that perception. He has the perception to realize that his opportunity is literally going by, that Jesus is passing by in his life. You know, Jesus said that he speaks in parables and he quoted Isaiah so that there are people who would be hearing and never understanding. They would be seeing and never perceiving. So many people I know have seen, but they haven't perceived the truth or the true identity of who Jesus is. Lots of people will tell you, oh yeah, I believe Jesus was a good guy or that he was a, he was a kind of a glorified social worker, that he was a decent man or that he was a moral teacher. That's okay. You do need the perception to go beyond that and see what he truly is, the way, the truth and the life. That's what you need to see. And this man had that perception, even though most of the people in the cavalcade around Jesus didn't have it. They, they told him, be quiet, but he shouted louder. Brothers and sisters, shout louder. I declare in Jesus' name, we're going to shout the name of Jesus even louder. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. Love it. Jesus hears it. And Jesus also perceives something. 
He also perceives that this man recognizes his true identity as Messiah. Of all the voices knocking around Jesus, of all the people shouting to him, Master, Rabbi, Teacher, of all the people speaking to him, this is the one that he stops when he hears. He stops and he orders that the man be brought to him. Imagine what it would be like if it was you. You're sitting by this roadside probably for years begging for alms and now the Messiah himself, the son of David, is inviting you into an encounter with him. What happens next is kind of strange. As the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? You go, hang on a second, who? I thought Jesus was supposed to be a prophet. I thought like, hello, Jesus. I like, hello, I, you know, take a wild guess, Mr. Prophetissimo. Do, who, who, what do you think I need? It's a very interesting question though. Because though it may be obvious to you and to me as we read that story, you know, of course, what did he want? He was blind, was it? Remember, this man had spent years calling out for alms, begging. Maybe he just wanted a few denarius to see him through the next while. Maybe he just wanted to have enough to get by. Maybe he had gotten so used to being blind that all he wanted was a bit of provision to support him in the midst of his difficulty. Sometimes we don't ask enough. Sometimes I know I don't ask enough. Love and C.S. Lewis says, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex when infinite happiness is offered to us. And so Jesus wants to hear from this man, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus needed to hear it coming from the man himself because if it came from the man himself it would demonstrate faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus could do for him and Jesus also didn't assume that this man wanted to see you know Jesus said he said even when you go to pray you don't have to go on and on and on and on when you pray it says because your heavenly father knows your needs even before you ask to which the obvious question presents itself then why would we bother asking if he already knows our needs? Because our asking itself is a demonstration of faith. Our asking is a demonstration of our need for God's provision in our lives. It is a recognition of our position under God. That's what they're asking about. He asks him an obvious question. What do you want me to do for you? He says. And of course, what did the man say? I want to see. I, 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 I want my eyes to be opened. I'm sitting here, I'm living this awful existence and Jesus moves in his life, hallelujah. And Jesus said, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. It is by your faith that you have been healed. If he'd asked for a couple of denarius, I think Jesus might have given him a couple of denarius. If he'd asked for, I don't know, a job for his son, I think he might have got the job for his son. But as it was, he had the vision, pardon the pun, the vision to see that the power of Jesus was present to solve the biggest problem of his life. What is the biggest problem in your life? What is the biggest issue in your life right now? And ask yourself, does God have the power to resolve that issue in my life? I want to tell you, he does. He has the power to move on your life and to resolve your biggest issue right now. And I don't care how big that issue is, God has the power to move in your life. This guy's biggest problem was resolved 
and healed when he recognized who Jesus was. Jesus passed by in his life. And if you will, this is a lived out parable. This is a lived out parable from the Gospels, as is the story of Zacchaeus that follows it, because it's a lived out parable of all the people that were around Jesus, who saw him, but never really saw him. This is a lived out parable of a man who couldn't see him, and yet did see him. Do you see him? Let me ask you that. Do you see him? When you read God's word and he says, consider the birds of the air who do not sow nor reap nor stow into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Do you see him in that? Do you see him in the physical healings that he performed? Do you see him in the baptism of the Holy Spirit that fell upon the early disciples? Do you see him? Is he still doing the same works today? Yes, he is. The start of the book of Acts says, and when Luke who wrote that also says to the guy Theophilus, he says, I'm writing to tell you in my last letter he said I told you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach before he was taken up into heaven this is only when we read those stories this was only the start of what Jesus was about to do the other question I'd ask you is this do you have the vision to see past no because that's all this man could see he could only see no he could only see today there was only provision just for that day only do you have the vision to see past now? Do you have the vision to see past the current lockdown and the current restrictions and the current social restrictions and church restrictions and work restrictions and home life restrictions? Do you have the vision to see past that so that we don't get lost in the morass and the mess that can overtake us? No, have we got the vision to see past it? This man, in recognizing Jesus, was able to see past his current trial and his current situation. I love the way it finishes. Instantly, the man could see. And he followed Jesus, praising God. And all who saw it, praised God too. Interestingly, they didn't shut him up this time. Nobody told him to be shut up, to shut up when he was praising God after he was healed. Nobody said, hey, there's no praising God, know that you're healed. Everybody, it says here, all who saw it, they praised God too. So the people who were telling him to shut up five minutes ago, listen to this for your own life. The people who were telling him to shut up a few minutes ago, when, he, when they saw the power of God at work in his life, and when he testified about it by praising God, the other people saw it too. And no, nobody was telling him to shut up. They were praising God alongside him. Hallelujah. You know something? There is an opportunity for your life and your transformed life to spread when you acknowledge God. The, the, the Psalm, I think it's Psalm 50 says, He who prepares a thank offering honors God and prepares the way for his salvation. When we acknowledge God, when we praise God, we create the opportunity for the good news about Jesus to spread from our lives and to the lives of others. I love it. Nobody told him to shut up when he was praising God. But you know, he needed vision. He needed vision physically. He had vision beyond the physical, but we all need it. All of us in our lives, we need vision and we need to work that vision out. Look at what the book of Proverbs says about having no vision in our lives. Have you got vision in your life? Can you see beyond your current circumstances? Are you looking towards a future? Are you? This is what the book of Proverbs says. It says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. It says, where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. In other words, where there's no direction, 
People go in their own direction. Everybody goes in their own direction. They enter a state. It's an amoral state. Some of the French philosophers refer to it as anime. It's a state in which we don't have any particular moral ruling in our lives. Only what we think is best for ourselves is the only thing. The book of Judges in the Old Testament testifies so many times in those days. Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Have we ever lived in a time when people do what was right in their own eyes like we live now? Where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no purpose for your life, you're not going to go anywhere. I love this term cast off restraint. It means to throw off the restraint, moral restraint, or throw off social restraint. It's a very interesting thing that when you read it, when you read the Hebrew, it actually means people go naked. People just strip off, they go naked. No, I'm not necessarily talking about people going literally in the nude, but they strip off all their covering, all that is covering in their lives. We need a vision for our lives. Vision is so important. Where are we going? What are we aiming for? What is your life aiming for right now? Vision is important, but it's also important to have the right vision. Because so many people are pursuing vision. Look, I've read loads of books over the years. I've read um, leadership books and church books and I've read uh, psychology books and I've read loads and loads of books over the years. And they all talk about the same thing, about having this, having, having a vision and pursuing it and, and, and going after it. Very often, however, they don't really clarify and say, well, you need to have the right vision. You need to be pursuing the right thing. Because many people are not pursuing a vision. They're actually pursuing a mirage. Everybody knows the story of people who are dying of thirst in the desert and they're crawling along in the desert and they see up ahead, they can see pools of water, or they, they can see an oasis and they have this imaginary vision of refreshment and peace and plenty up ahead, but it isn't real. It's not a vision. It's a mirage. It's completely fake. And so many of the people, believe it or not, that you know, they're chasing a vision but it isn't really a vision because it will never truly, deeply satisfy in the way that only Jesus can. Would anyone say amen? Amen. Well, it'll never truly satisfy. They're chasing a mirage. Here's what last week's, the hero of last week's story, Solomon, said. This is what he said about his life. This is towards the end of his life. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes. He uses this phrase time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes about his experience. Remember, a man who chased the vision. He, he had a vision for the temple of God and he built it. And he had vision for palaces and he built in visions for towns and wells and walls and the expansion of the border. Such visions he had. But this is what he said about it. As I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, he said. It was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind, chasing after the wind. All that he worked so hard to do, he concludes at the end of his life, it was a chasing after the wind. I was chasing after the wind, but sure, you can't catch up with the wind. Everybody knows you can't catch up with the wind. He was chasing after a mirage for his life. I was thinking this week about two. I know, I, I don't begrudge them their riches or their genius, but God bless them. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon and the head of SpaceX, or the, space of or the head of Tesla cars, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Here's the two richest men in the world, the two richest individuals in the world. When you think about it, 
These two guys are only competing against each other. N neither Jeff Bezos nor, nor Elon Musk thinks about any of us and thinks, you know what, I'm going to have to outdo that guy. He's only thinking about Jeff Bezos and Jeff Bezos is only thinking about Elon Musk. And you know, I always say to my kids, there's always someone out there faster who'll draw faster, who'll shoot faster, who'll jump higher, kick a ball further, be more, more, take your pick. There'll always be someone better than you. It's a chasing after the wind. And here is what Solomon concludes, last verse of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. Here's what he says. After all of this life experience of pursuing all of these amazing projects and all of these amazing things that his life was filled with, he said, now here is my final conclusion. He says, fear God and obey his commandments. This is everyone's Duty. Oh no, don't talk about duty. Cover up that word. It's an ugly word. We don't like the word duty. But that's what he said. He said, fear God and obey his commands. If you can just fear God and obey his commands, you will have lived a fruitful, truthful, worthwhile life. Would anyone say amen? Amen and amen. So we've got two amens or a time. That time, that was well worth it, wasn't it? Mm. Anyway, fear God and obey his commands. That was the conclusion he came at the end of his life. This man who had it all, literally had it all. He did everything. And this was his final conclusion. Now, because of the it's in it, I want to do one last comparison before I wrap up. And it's this. What about love and vision? You see, love, because it's St. Valentine's Day, and everybody loves the love hearts of St. Valentine's Day. It's curious to know that very few people know who St. Valentine was and what happened to him. Uh, St. Valentine was actually a martyr. He was a Christian martyr. He was a third century martyr. He was martyred after his attempt to convert Claudius II, the emperor of Rome, who didn't really like being kind of converted. So he had him stoned and then beaten and then beheaded. Happy Valentine's Day, darling. See, we don't think of that side of it, but he was a Christian martyr. He was the man who paid the price for following Jesus, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's who St. Valentine was. It turns out that he's also the patron saint of lovers, of married people, of engaged people, and as it turns out, beekeepers. Don't know how they managed to get all those in. And soup, according to some, I don't know. Can you have a patron saint of soup? Better be a nice soup, a vegetable soup, or, you know, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Anyway, love and vision, what did they have in common? When first of all, as you catch the vision, you see that one that your heart loves. You, you, your eyes pop out of your head. Your heart beats a little bit faster when you see that person, when you're around that person, when you're close to that person. It's somebody that you want to be with. You catch it as well. You catch the vision. But then you have to walk it out step by step. It isn't going to be all love hearts and roses and harps and angels singing. And if for anybody who it is, please write a book and tell us how it's done. Because I don't know how it's done. But I would say to you that it's worked out by taking one step after another. I love it. When the blind man was healed, he praised God. But then he had to follow Jesus. Then he took one step in front of the other. He experienced the joy. He saw the vision. Imagine that the first thing he sees when his eyes are open is Jesus himself. He sees the whole Hope and the light of the world, the first thing he sees when he opens his eyes. And then he has to follow Jesus one step at a time. Love is the same. It's the same as vision. We see it. We grasp it. We, we, we marry it. We fall in love with someone. And, and we marry them or connect with them, whatever you're having yourself. But then we've got to step it out. And that's why when Paul writes 
about love in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not talking about romantic love. He doesn't say, love always has love hearts and little doves flying around and angels' wings. He doesn't say anything like that. Here's actually what he says, and there's something interesting about stepping it out. He says this, he says, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Do you notice anything about any of the things that Paul lists here? Not one emotion is listed. Not one emotion is listed. Only decisions and only choices. That is all that is listed here. So to pursue love, we have to put one foot in front of the other while pursuing the vision. Are you with me? I hope you're with me. If you're with me, give us an only amen. He goes on to say this. Very importantly, he says this. He said, it always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. You see, sometimes love involves perseverance it really does and that love cannot necessarily be the love for your significant other but it can be the love for your children sometimes you gotta persevere sometimes you just gotta have a bit of hope would you give us a bit of hope michael and sometimes it sometimes it protects it will always protect it always protects it always trusts it always hopes it always perseveres that's the evidence of love that is seeing the vision and stepping it out persevering trusting hoping all the way but I love what Dallas Willard, who is an American Christian writer, says about love. It's one of my favourite quotes about love, and it's very eye-opening. In actual fact, if Carol and Cormac are there, they'll note that I used this quote at their wedding, at their wedding on, on Valentine's Day uh, seven years ago. Here is what the quote says. It says, the first act of love is always the giving of attention. The first thing that love does is it pays attention. Jesus' act of love towards Bartimaeus was that he paid attention to him. He stopped going about his busy, ministerial, responsible, in-demand life. He stopped and he said, bring that man to me. And he spoke to him. He paid attention because we pay attention to the things that we love. Whether a man's love is of sport our hobbies, our money, whatever, this, whatever his love is, you'll see he'll be paying attention to that. And if you see a fella in the gym and he's ripping his muscles open and he's standing in the mirror, you might like Tom there ripped with the six pack and the pecs and the muscles. You see, you see a fella like that and he's, he's all ripped and you see him, do you ever notice they're always standing looking in the mirror while they lift the muscles? Why? Well, they're paying attention to the thing that they love. If you say that you love your wife, but you never want to be with her, eh, I'm not so sure. If you say, well, I love my children, but they really annoy me and I don't want to be around them, eh, you probably don't love them because the first act of love is always the giving of attention. Let me bring it to some form of a close. Let me make this point. What about the attention that we pay in our love of God? When we love Jesus, do we pay attention? Do we listen to his word? Do we make an effort to be in his company as he has made an effort to be in our company? He paid the ultimate price to be in our company. Do we pay attention? Do we listen when we hear his word? When our conscience is moved by something we read, do 
we pay attention. Do we set aside the time? And I said it last week, I said it the last few weeks. Do we set aside enough time to get COVID-19? 15 minutes a day, face to face. Do we set aside time? Because the first act of love is always the giving of attention. I want to say to husbands out there, brothers, pay attention to your wives. Would any of the brothers in the room here say amen? Amen from Tom. Almost an amen from Tom there. I'd say the same to the wives out there. Yes, it's controversial. Pay attention to your husband. Listen to him. Do something that he wants to do. You know, get alongside him. Pay attention. Pay attention to your children. If you say you love something, pay attention to it. Pay attention to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pay attention. Listen. Tell him your needs. When he says, what do you want me to do for you? Tell him what you need. Keep it honest. Keep it simple and keep it up. I've said it before and I probably will end up saying it again. What is the vision of our lives? What I want to put back to you? Well, unsurprisingly, where would I go? Of course, Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews, the great vision of his life. And moreover, he tells us that we need to keep our eyes fixed on that vision. And the fixing of our eyes on that vision involves fixing our eyes in it, knowing what it is that we are pursuing, knowing the person that we are pursuing, and then taking one step after another in the pursuit of that person. That person is Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. You know it. Let us look only to Jesus, he says. I love the way in some translations he says, fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the one who began our faith. And he's the one who makes our faith perfect. Keep your eyes on Jesus. There's an old song. We'll actually end up playing it here in a few minutes. He used to go, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let's lift up our eyes in this coming week. And fix them on Jesus. Not on our circumstances. Not on the things that just surround us. Or the things that annoy us. Or even the things that are sometimes giving us a little bit of entertainment. But let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Amen. He's the one who's going to finish the work. And the good news about God is that he always finishes his work. You know when you look around your house and you see the DIY things that you just never quite got finished or never got to. God doesn't have those. He doesn't have those. The mansions that, he is, that Jesus has gone to prepare are all completed. They are all ready. So let me ask you today two questions. One, who is telling you to be quiet? What is stopping you from fixing your eyes on Jesus? What is stopping you from calling out to Jesus Christ? What is stopping you? Will you speak up today? Will you speak up to that situation today and cry out to the Lord anyway? The next question, of course, is what do you want him to do for you? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. What an open offer. Incredible. What an offer. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus is asking you the same question today. What do you want me to do for you? Tell him what you want him to do for you. It's okay. He's not frightened by it. It doesn't matter what size it is. He's not afraid of it. And then ask it, when I ask you this, do you have the right vision? What are you looking towards? Are you pursuing a vision? Are you pursuing a mirage? And only you can answer those questions. But I want to pray just as we close. I won't pray for long. I'm just going to pray for a second before I hand back to Tom. If you want, you can close your eyes where you are. If it's speaking to you, close your eyes. I'm just going to pray briefly. 
just a couple of sentences in each. Father in heaven, I pray that nobody would be silenced by the shout of circumstance, or situation, of embarrassment, or of shyness, or trouble, or intimidation, especially by our enemy, the devil, in the way that he plays with our minds. I pray that nobody would be silenced, and that everyone, Lord, who needs to hear this today, will speak up and shout even louder, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy in my situation. I pray that in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that we would find that our desires, our regular desires are too weak. Lord, I pray we would lift our eyes up to a bigger vision for our lives and say, Lord, this is what I want you to do for me. For some of us, Lord, it's a matter of finishing our race well. For others, Lord, it is the big issue in our lives that needs to be resolved. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be intimidated and that we wouldn't be intimidated by the size of the challenge but our challenge will be intimidated by the size of our God. I pray, Lord, that today we wouldn't hold back with our prayers, but that they would be honest, they would be truthful, they would be consistent, and they would be persistent, Lord. Let us hear today your voice. What do you want me to do for you? And Lord, I pray that all of us would indulge only the vision to keep Jesus before our eyes, because he is the author and the finisher of the work that he is doing in our lives. Lord, as we go into this week of prayer and fasting, Lord, I pray that our prayers would be heard by you. I pray, Lord, that as a result of those of us who fast, Lord, I pray that our eyes really would be fixed on you, Lord. I pray this week, Lord Jesus, that you would hear our prayer, hear our cry, move upon our lives, on our homes and our land. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters. And